the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Uh, I hope that you're all doing well. Uh, we're going to be continuing our series here on uh, Christology. Uh, there are so many things that can be discussed uh, in doing a series like this. And that might mean that uh, some things that you want to be covered aren't necessarily going to be covered. Um, and if we had that in-person interaction, we might actually be able to do that. So uh, I ask of you guys, if, if anyone has something that they specifically want to hear about, or if they have a question about it, um, reach out and let me know. And I really mean that um, so that we can see whether or not we can, we can cover it in this series uh, and get some clarification. Uh, topics like these, it's, it's usually much better to be able to do this uh, instead of just this sort of one-sided lecture format to have it as a discussion um, so that we can work through things and, uh, and ask questions. And uh, unfortunately, we don't have that uh, capability right now. So please, please reach out if there's something that uh, you have a question about. So uh, in, in starting on uh, this series formally on Christology, we have to have uh, a particular point that we're going to be starting on. And the cross is, is our starting point. The cross is at the center of all history, and our discussion must similarly be centered on the cross. Now, that's, that's interesting because, um, as we had covered last time as well, uh, there's this idea that, you know, maybe we should start from the historical beginning, what we consider, you know, if we, if we see things from chronological time, um, then the cross was, you know, a little bit less than 2,000 years ago. Uh, and so why not start, you know, even before that and, and, and go into detail about stuff like that. Um, we have to have a particular lens by which we'll be able to see all of history, uh, the history that preceded it, as well as what comes after. Uh, and and that's, that's important because the way that uh, things are established uh, within creation uh, has this in mind, right? The cross has always been the center uh, and was always planned to be the center of history. Uh, and so that must be the point at which we start. And then we view things from, from there, uh, both forwards, obviously, that I think most of us are comfortable doing that, seeing how it is that, you know, the cross changed things, um, and where, where humanity went from, from there, but also viewing it backwards uh, and seeing how, how things are pointing to that, how, how it's always been uh, about the cross. Um, now, we, we see that this is true in the manner in which the church fathers deal with Christology as well. Um, one of the works that had the most long-lasting effect on theology and specifically within the realm um, of Christology is St. Athanasius's work on the Incarnation. Um, it's the second part of a text that he penned at the time, and the first part was called uh, Against the Pagans. Uh, the second part is clearly the, the more famous of the two, uh, and that's what many of us, when we start getting interested in um, reading something from the Fathers, or if uh, you've had series at, at, at church, um, where you do kind of a book, a book club. Uh, sometimes this will be the, the book that they start with on the incarnation. Now, 
why are we suddenly speaking about the incarnation if we said that the, the center of Christology must be the cross? One of the things that catches people off guard when they start reading the very popular on the incarnation is that it doesn't really focus very much on the topics that we think would fall under this column of things related to the incarnation. Uh, you'd think that it would focus quite a bit on the Holy Virgin Mary, for example, and his taking flesh from her, and perhaps uh, even an analysis of, of uh, what Jesus Christ is composed of, um, if he has a human soul, or if the divinity takes the part of the human soul, um, which, by the way, it doesn't, as a side note. Uh, but that's not the, the, the focus of this work. Uh, the primary focus of both of these works, against the pagans and on the Incarnation, is answering a particular question. Who was it that died on the cross, and why did he do that? What's the reason that he became incarnate to begin with? It's clearly the cross. And because this is the center, and we see that even you know, uh, from, from a biblical standpoint, that, that the thing that we preach, according to St. Paul, the, the most important thing that we preach is Christ and him crucified. Uh, that is our faith. That is the center of our faith. And so we have to answer, who was it that was crucified? Now, you know, maybe the, the, the very superficial answer is Jesus Christ, but who is Jesus Christ? Um, and why did he do that? Why was that even the appropriate means by which uh, whatever it was that was supposed to be affected, that this was done? Uh, as such, I, I thought that it would be beneficial to begin our series on Christology by working our way through these two texts briefly. Um, it's also often the case that people don't make very much mention of the first part, which is uh, against the pagans. So I thought that it'd be nice to take some reflections from there first. Um, we'll cover basically half of that work here today, uh, and then hopefully get through the, the second half the next time. Uh, and then we could start on, on the incarnation. Uh, and again, not, not, the plan is not to make that you know, very uh, tedious, but to, to look at things from a generalized perspective, because so many facets of uh, Christology are going to be covered within this, this amazing work here. Um, and so let's, let's begin. In terms of um, both of these works, St. Athanasius, when he writes, he says that there's an express purpose of why it is that he's writing this. Um, he says that, that no one may regard the teaching of our doctrine as worthless or suppose faith in Christ to be irrational. Uh, we'll get into this in a bit more detail as we move forward, but we, we already know that the term logos is identified with Jesus Christ. And we often translate that the, the term logos as the word, uh, but logos also means reason and logic. Uh, that's where the word logic actually comes from is logos. So if, if we're to have faith in Christ, especially in our own time, when faith can be ridiculed and religion is seen as backwards and irrational and unenlightened, then we should see how logical and rational it really is and why that very word, logic, is associated with Christ as logos. Uh, people at the time when St. Athanasius was writing this were mocking the cross uh, and they'll likely 
continued to do that for the rest of human history. Um, you know, who, who are we worshiping here? A man that died on a cross? Uh, by all human standards, that's very weak. It's a very weak uh, presentation. You know, you, you, would, you would think that uh, the, the one that you'd worship is, is the great hero that, that conquers uh, and conquers in, in a way that's, that's uh, very visible to us. Um, but, but what we see, at least from, from the, the human side, uh, what's presented from a, a, a historical reality uh, is that, you know, this, this, looks, this looks very weak. Um, and it, it also as a result of that, if anyone really gives it any sort of thought, it seems very odd that we would, that we would show the cross everywhere, that we would hang these on our walls and wear them around our necks, um, because it really looks like a sign of weakness. And, and it's seen as such by many people that are outside of the church, uh, and perhaps even by people that are inside of the church that, that don't really consider uh, the depth of its, of its profundity. Um, and so it's, it's important for us to be able to outline this. Why is, why is the cross logical? Why is our faith rational? And it, and it must be rational. It has to be a logical thing. Um, and if it's not, then, then it, it doesn't hold water. Uh, but because it's based on, on rationale itself, on logic itself, on the logos, on Christ, and this is what it is that St. Athanasius is going to be working through, um, then of course, by definition, it must, it must be logical. Uh, and so in this, in this work, uh, against the pagans, if you'll permit me. Uh, I'm going to cite some text directly here. Uh, and I, I realize that it can be a bit dense at times. And I wish that we were doing this in person so that uh, people could stop and ask questions for clarification. But let's try to work through this and see the beauty of what's being described. Uh, much of the focus of this first work is, is against idolatry. Um, and St. Athanasius uh, speaks first about what things were like in the beginning when man was created, where idolatry came from, and so on. And this is what he says. He says, For God, the creator of the universe and king of all, who is beyond all being and human thought, since he is good and exceedingly noble, has made the human race according to his own image, through his own word, our Savior, Jesus Christ. He also fashioned the human being to be perceptive and understanding of reality through his similarity to himself, through man's similarity to Christ, man's similarity to the image in which he was formed. For having no obstacle to the knowledge of the divine, he continuously contemplates by his purity the image of the Father, God the Word, after whose image he was made. So man in the beginning when he's made, the purpose of, of, his, uh, of his being made or what it is that he's being allowed to do um, is to contemplate the image in which he was made in, to, to contemplate Christ. Um, and, and he had no obstacle in doing that. Now, it's, uh, you know, I include this icon here. Um, it's a very beautiful icon uh, because it shows... Uh, a few things within this dynamic in, in terms of how things were supposed to be. Uh, 
how things were designed to be. You'll see that we have here on, on the left of the image uh, is Christ, and on the right is Adam. And Adam is, is seated and he's looking up at Christ. Um, and that's the orientation that he has. He's always looking towards Christ. He's always supposed to be contemplating Christ. His eyes are focused towards Christ. Uh, and the other beautiful thing is that uh, the iconographer here has, has highlighted that uh, if you look at their faces, they're the same, right? Adam is made in the image of Christ. And so that, um, he's, he's, he, that contemplation uh, is, is really highlighting this. Um, it's highlighting that, that Adam, his existence, his very existence is founded in Christ. And so when he looks towards Christ and he's contemplating him, which is the highest of things, uh, it's, you know, when eventually when we get to um, our, our other series of, of spirituality and we see um, the heights of spirituality in, in, in the writings of the Desert Fathers, uh, we get to this, we get to this, 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 this high form of contemplation, this high form of prayer, of standing before God. Um, in awe. And this is how we see Adam is oriented uh, in the beginning. Uh, and he goes on, he says, just as the Holy Scriptures say that the first created of human beings, who was called Adam in Hebrew, at the beginning had his mind fixed on God in unembarrassed boldness and lived with the Holy Ones in the contemplation of intelligible reality which he enjoyed in that place, which the Holy Moses figuratively called paradise. So purity of soul is sufficient to reflect and behold through itself God. As the Lord himself said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, what's uh, interesting about this, from what St. Athanasius is pointing out, is that he says that the, the, the place that Moses um, ascribes this contemplation to uh, is a figurative place. It's figuratively called paradise. Uh, and, and what he's trying to highlight here is that uh, the worship of God and his contemplation is not tied to a specific place. It's not in heaven or on earth. Uh, it's, not, it's not something that is... Um, in Jerusalem or on some other sort of mountain, uh, it's within the individual. It is the very contemplation that can take place anywhere uh, that makes that place paradise. And so he says that Moses calls it figuratively paradise. Now it's important for us um, because that also means that, that we can contemplate God anywhere. This can, this can occur for us, whether in the city or in the desert, at work or at home, um, this, uh, this ability to pray and to reach out and to, to, to try to behold uh, God uh, in the way that he reveals himself to us, this, this can be accomplished anywhere. Um, before we go any further, I want to highlight a theme uh, in the gospel according to St. John that's often totally lost on us. Uh, because we read it in translation. Uh, and that word is to remain 
or to abide. And it's going to factor in very heavily in St. Athanasius' discussion of what was meant for man. Let's see this in the gospel first uh, and then move on to St. Athanasius. I was going to include maybe two or three verses initially, but um, I think it's extremely valuable to see just how much this word is used and, and the context in which it's used um, in the Bible. Uh, and I'm not going to go into any further detail on these verses because there's quite a number of them. Um, but it, I hope that it will tie together for us a, a theme in our mind, uh, what it means to remain or to abide. And we'll see what St. Athanasius says about this afterwards. So we'll start here. It says, And John bear record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. It remained upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him. The same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And then a bit further on, it says, Then Jesus turned and saw them following. These are, are the disciples. Saw them following and said unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted master, Where dwellest thou? Where do you remain? Where do you abide? The focus again here, just, just to make it a bit clearer as we're, as we're working through this, is that abiding is, is a, a permanent state. It's a state of, of uh, continual uh, being. And so when we see something that is being referred to here as uh, someone that's abiding, you know, uh, abiding also comes from, from the word abode, which is home or house. Um, it, it, there's, there's a very strong thought of permanence. That's where it is that you are. Um, and so when, when we see things here in terms of things abiding, it's, it's supposed to be how things are from a permanent standpoint. Again, it says, he said unto them, come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt, where he abode. And abode with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. So they, they want to see where he is, where he abides, and they themselves abide there as well. Uh, later on in the gospel, it says, And ye have not his word abiding in you. For whom he had sent him you believe not. Christ is saying here, to, you know, sort of as a critique of, of the people, um, that, that they don't have the word of God abiding in them. For, for whom he had sent, Christ himself, him you believe not. And again, labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endures, which abides, which remains unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth, abideth, remaineth in me, and I in him. And then again later on, then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue, if you remain, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, if you abide. Jesus said unto them, If you were blind, you should have no sin. But now you say, We see. Therefore, your sin 
remains. So we see this on both sides of the spectrum, right? It's not only if you abide in Christ uh, from the positive standpoint, uh, and, and if you're there, and that's what it is that he's calling us to do, to remain in him, um, that, that that's sort of the good side. Uh, but the, the, the contrary also holds true, right? Um, if, if you sin, then you, you remain in your sin. You remain in your sin. And so it's not an idea of, you know, oh, I did something good, then that goes in the good column. I did a sin that goes in the sin column as though they're just sort of individual things. It's the state of being. It's how it is that you are. Do you abide in him or do you abide in sin? Uh, and then we see uh, in John 14 and 15 uh, just a, an overabundance of this word, abiding. And I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide. This is the Holy Spirit, that he may abide with you forever. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except you abide in me. I'm the vine. You are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If you don't abide in me, you can do nothing. If a man abides not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. As the Father by the way, that's a very interesting one. Uh, I just want to stop just, just for a little bit there. Because when we say, you know, when Christ says, uh, uh, thus far you've asked nothing in my name, ask and it shall be given to you. And then we say, okay, then, you know, I'm, I'm going to go and I'm going to pray. And then you ask something in his name and then it's not given. Uh, there's a condition to this. And that condition is, is right there. It says, um, if you abide in me, if you abide in me, if you live according to my commandments, if you're, if you're living in this, in this life, if your spirit is, is directed towards me and it is a spirit of, of a permanent dwelling or, or that's what it is that you're striving to have it be, uh, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue, abide, remain you in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So he's showing us something here. And this is going to be so very important for St. Athanasius because everything that we see that abides in Christ naturally, what naturally occurs is what it is that he's calling us to do, uh, not by nature, but by grace. Uh, that's what we are supposed to be striving to do. And so he says, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. You shall remain in my love. Even as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So what I do naturally, that's what it is that I'm calling for you to do. And so this theme of abiding is what it is that we'll, we'll, we'll see um, very prominently uh, in the works of St. Athanasius. And it's in, in being able to abide in him and remain in him. That is what we were supposed to be doing from the beginning. This is what Adam was called to, this continual 
contemplation, this continual interaction, this continual relationship that's between him and God, that's between him and the image of God, between him and Christ. This is what, what is uh, being said. And so we go back here to uh, St. Athanasius' words, and he says, in this way then, now we're talking about uh, the beginning. In this way then, as has been said, did the creator fashion the human race, and such did he wish it to remain. But man, contemptuous of the better things, and, sh and shrinking from their apprehension, sought rather what was closer to themselves. And what was closer to them was the body and its sensations. When by the counsel of the serpent, he abandoned his thinking of God. So now he's no longer abiding. He's no longer remaining. Because he's abandoned that contemplation. When by the counsel of the serpent, he abandoned his thinking of God and began to consider himself. Then they fell into the desire of the body and knew that they were naked and knowing were ashamed. They knew that they were not so much naked of clothing, it's not physical, but that they had become naked of the contemplation of divine things and that they had turned their minds in the opposite direction. There's, there's a lot of things to unpack here. Um, first and foremost, and I'll say this before we get into, the, in, into the, the further details here, it's extremely imperative that we don't take from this that the body is evil because he says here that, uh, that shrinking from their apprehension sought rather what was closer to themselves and what was closer to them was the body and its sensations. And so it's very easy for us to come away from this and say that then therefore that the body is evil. The body is good and was made for good. But man's contemplation was not supposed to be directed towards his own self, his own body, his own pleasures. It was supposed to be directed towards God. This is, this is exactly what it is that Christ outlines for us when he says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Right? Don't worry about the body. Don't worry about its pleasures. Don't focus on its pleasures. Um, focus on God. Focus on contemplating on God. Don't worry about those things. It doesn't mean don't, don't do anything towards them so that you say, for example, that you're not supposed to work um, or we don't have to eat or something like this. But he says, don't be worried about that stuff because that's not where your mind is supposed to be taking you um, and where, where the, the overwhelming majority of the energy that you're spending is supposed to be directed. Those things will take care of themselves because I will take care of those things for you. But seek ye first the kingdom of God right? Seek ye first the contemplation of God. And again, what he's saying here is not the kingdom of God as a physical thing. And that, again, he even outlines uh, when he has these discussions with others uh, and, they, and they ask him about, you know, the kingdom. And he says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not a physical kingdom. Um, 
the kingdom is something that is uh, is within us. And he says that as well, right? For the kingdom of God is within you. It's in your heart. And that contemplation, again, is something that can take place anywhere. So, um, taking taking apart some of these things here, uh, when, when we say, when he says here in the beginning, um, in this way, then, as has been said, did the creator fashion the human race, and such did he wish it to remain. Those things that he was also referring to when he, when, uh, when he was speaking in, in John 14 and 15, those commandments, that, 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 uh, that uh, ultimate way that we were supposed to be abiding in him, that permanence, how it is that we're supposed to remain, uh, that is the commandment from the beginning. This is not the backup commandment. This isn't, you know, Adam was formed one way and then he fell and now let me give you something new. This is what was asked of from the beginning. And again, uh, it's, it's a continual state. And this is how we're supposed to remain. But men not liking the better things, contemptuous of the better things, of the things of God, and, sh and shrinking from their own apprehension, sought rather what was closer to themselves. And what was closer to them was the body and its sensations, the pleasures of the world, the things here, the things that distract us from, from God. That's what we sought out after instead. And when by the counsel of the serpent he abandoned his thinking of God and began to consider himself, then, now see, this is one of those interesting things that St. Athanasius does, that if, if we just read through it very quickly, we won't, we won't capture it. It says, when by the counsel of the serpent he abandoned his thinking of God and began to consider himself, then they fell into the desire of the body and knew that they were naked and knowing we're ashamed. One of the things that we'll find here that's, that's rather amazing and, and, and very consistent amongst the, the fathers as well, is that just as, as, as uh, again, this is something that we see in the Gospel of John as well. It was a beautiful gospel, and I hope someday that we can go through it uh, in great, great detail because it's, it's just astounding uh, in terms of what it is that it reveals to us. Just as... Uh, Christ says, just as uh, the Father and I are one, uh, so that you may be one as well, that you may be one in me, right? And this abiding is what makes us one, uh, and that we may all be one, right? And he prays for this, that we may all be one. Uh, and so there's, there's uh, this very clear sense that there's no fragmentation in the beginning. That doesn't mean that we were God right? But we're all unified with one another, especially us, uh, you know, in, in humanity here. And because of our contemplation uh, and our continued reliance on God, that we'd be unified with him as well, that we would be abiding with him. That, and that, that would be done by, by that, that contemplation. That, once that uh, is severed, we go from he, so from, from a unified he, from mankind, 
as one to fragments and we all become separated. And so then he says, again, just, just with that in mind, he abandoned his thinking of God and began to consider himself. Then they fell into the desire of the body and knew that they were naked and knowing were ashamed. And this is why we have so much strife between one another now. Not just between people that consider themselves to be enemies um, or, uh, you know, the way that we deal with each other in society now and, and especially now when, when everyone is so ramped up about so many different issues and, and topics and everyone has so much zeal about things um, and we're, we're very contentious with one another. Um, that, that, that wasn't there. That wasn't supposed to be there. And so this is a result of the fall. And it's a result not of us turning against one another. It's a result of us turning against God. And that is, that is the immediate consequence. Once you sever that tie between you and God, then the way that you deal with other people is also going to be very, very different. Um, and so, so we see that this is what brings shame onto humanity. They knew that they were not so much naked of clothing, but that they had become naked of the contemplation of divine things and that they had turned their minds in the opposite direction. Now, this is, this is something that is also notable for us. When we sin, it's not as though we're, we're directed towards God and our focus is God, and then suddenly we just go off, you know, one or two degrees. So you say, you know, if, if someone is a saint, they, you know, they barely, they barely come off course, and then they just come right back onto course or something like that. It's not that one or two degrees, right? It's that when we lose this contemplation of God, usually the mind is directed in the opposite direction. There is no degrees here, right? It's not, you know, oh, you're just a little bit off. You just send a little bit. Uh, it's either you're directed towards God or you're moving in the opposite direction. And that is the nakedness that St. Athanasius is highlighting here. That nakedness of contemplation, they lost that. We lost that. Um, and that's what we're striving to, to, to do again. Um, but again, this is not something that is simply done uh, on uh, you know, a, uh, an individual basis or, or an event basis uh, so that you know, right now at this hour, then you do this, and then you're supposed to be doing that uh, you know, sort of repeat in the next hour and the next hour. This has to be something that is done uh, for us in a general state because we were in a general state and then we fell from that general state. Uh, but with all of that said, uh, it is not as though, and we say this in the liturgy, you have not abandoned us to the end. Uh, even, uh, even those that were, were, uh, outside of the, the, the people of God, the people of Israel. All of humanity still had the ability to be able to contemplate God somehow, uh, but we didn't. And we see this in, in uh, the epistle of St. Paul to the, to the Romans. 
Um, and this is something that, that St. Athanasius himself highlights as well. In Romans, it says, ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. If you look around at the things in the world, because the world is made by God, and we see here this icon, this beautiful icon of Christ being the one who's calling all of these things into existence uh, so that all of the world proclaims him, right? The heavens proclaim him. Uh, and and this, this is his handiwork, right? And we say that from, from the book of Psalms. So that you could look around and see all of these things that he has made and what he has done. These things were given to us so that by looking at them, if we were oriented appropriately, um, we would be able to see uh, God's handiwork in them. We'd be able to see his fingerprints, so to speak, in them. Uh, and I'd venture to say that this happens, uh, happens sometimes. Um, you could definitely see this when, when, uh, when you look into, for example, some, some very, very high-level, very brilliant scientists. Um, when, they, when they study things in great, great detail, um, they will start... Uh, I remember reading a quote recently that I don't remember who it was that said it, uh, but he says that, you know, when you start, when you start looking into science in the very beginning, uh, you become an atheist. Uh, and if you go into great, great detail, then you see God. Um, because the, the, the sheer intricacy of things and how it is that things work, um, whether you're looking towards the skies and space um, and astronomy or, uh, or, or the things uh, that are are, you know, in very, very minute detail, atomic and subatomic things, uh, or the things that are, that are in the cell and how, you know, um, things work. And uh, it's amazing just the, 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 the way that all of these things can point uh, to God. But we didn't even have to go into all of that detail, right? We didn't have to progress to this point to be able to see all of that. If we had just looked around, and we were oriented appropriately, we would be able to see his handiwork in all of these things. And so human beings could still have learned about God through their sense perception. For he so ordered creation that although he cannot be seen by nature, yet he can be known from his works. It's important to note how St. Athanasius again affirms that it is by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, his own word, the word of the Father, that the Father acts to govern and order the universe. It's by Christ that he does this, right? Christ is the one who is the word of the Father that brings these things into existence and holds these things in existence as well. Um, and so when we see the creative work of God and we see the providential work of God, these cannot be separated from the salvific work of God. It's all one because it all finds its center in Christ. He is the focus. He is the focus and he must be our focus as well. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop here because uh, then he's going to get a little bit into uh, the cross. And then hopefully after that, we'll get into on the incarnation with, with a much uh, greater degree of focus on the cross as well. Um, 
again, I urge you, if you have any questions, to please, please reach out. Uh, I know that some of this is very dense, um, but I think that it's, it's important for us to be able to work through these things because we will see such beauty in the way that, that things are outlined for us. And we'll be able to see the sheer power uh, of the name of Christ and, and the cross as well. Uh, keep this service in, in your prayers. Uh, I hope that you're all praying for, for the church and, and hopefully, again, I, I say this often, and I really mean it, hopefully we'll be able to do this in person at some point soon so that we can re-engage in that kind of interaction uh, and, and ask questions and, and see uh, just the beauty of the things that God has given to us and what it is that he's revealed to us uh, by, by the, the blessed eyes of, of those who have come before us, those church fathers that outline for us these things um, and point us towards Christ so that we might be able to contemplate him and reorient ourselves appropriately. And glory be to God forever. Amen.